I'm just back from an extended visit to Australia. And as a farewell act, a farewell treat, I took my family, my mum, my two brothers and their extended family out to a fancy dinner. Now, I'm a vegetarian or maybe a pescatarian. I eat some fish occasionally. But I decided to take everybody to a high-end steakhouse, which was confusing for everybody because we've just had three months of me going, I don't eat meat. But I wanted to go there because, well, they are all committed carnivores. Not all of them, but most of them are committed carnivores. And I also knew that most of them hadn't had the experience of the theater and the rituals that go with a classic steakhouse. And not only was the food great, I mean, there were kind of these moans of appreciation of a really good steak around the table. But as dinner unfolded, I ran a little kind of pub quiz, I guess you could call it. I broke everybody into three teams, three rounds of questions, slightly dubious prize. So there's a sense of engagement and interaction and competition and bonhomie that was just absolutely delightful. It was a really great night. And I felt that I accomplished my goal, which is not just to say thank you and take people out to dinner, but it was to create a special memory, a moment for these people whom I love. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that has shaped them. Amantha Imba is a speaker. She's the host of Australia's number one business podcast, and she's a freshly printed author. Her new book, TimeWise, is actually just out in the world. And the foundation for all of that is actually her training as an organizational psychologist. But here's the thing. I'm not entirely sure what an organizational psychologist actually does. I help people do better work and feel better at work. And I feel like that is my professional identity, despite the fact that I do quite a few different things like host the How I Work podcast, I write books, I run a business. As well as speaking and podcasting and writing, Amantha founded a company called Inventium. But of course, that's never where the story starts. And in the beginning, she found herself using her education, her training for work that felt, well, let's just say it felt a little hollow. When I finished my PhD in organizational psychology, I went and worked in advertising as a consumer psychologist. And I did that for about five years. And I loved the work. It was intellectually very stimulating, but ethically, like I hadn't chosen to become a psychologist so I could help convince more people to buy chocolate bars. That <laughs> that felt a bit empty. And so I've got to a point in advertising where I felt like I'd reached my used by date. So Amantha decided she was done. She let her boss know that he had three months to replace her. And then she did what we would all do, which is to roll up our sleeves and to start the job hunt. How do I find a job that speaks to my values and my head and my hands and my heart? How does it use all of me? How do I feel really excited and committed to it? And she found pretty much nothing. <laughs> I mean, I know that. I know that feeling. I've been on that job hunt. Where, where is it? Where is my perfect job? But, you know, in that hunt, actually, she uncovered two things that would influence her future path. A couple of friends said to me, why don't you just start your own business? And I thought, well, that's, that's silly. Like, what do I know? I think I'm 28. I was 28, 29 at the time. That's a stupid idea. But 
then I thought, well, I can't find anywhere to work. And actually, there was one place that I did find that I wanted to work, and that was a global innovation consultancy. And I got so excited about this role. I couldn't even believe that innovation consultants were a thing. That's funny. Actually, after we stopped recording the conversation, I asked Amantha about this innovation company. Turns out I know them. In fact, I was their first ever employee way back in the 90s, many, many moons ago in London. So, but anyway, Amantha interviewed for that role, the innovation consultancy, and made it to the very end of the process. So she had just one remaining hurdle to get over, to get hired, and that was to run a mock workshop for the company. And it did not go well. At the day of the workshop, I woke up and I had the flu. And I was like, I was, I was sweating. I had the, like the highest fever, but I just thought the show must go on because, <laughs> you know, like 10 of their staff were coming to this workshop. So I just thought right. I'll, just, I'll just suck it up and I won't even mention it. And I did the workshop and I thought like, you know, I did the best that I could because of this flu. And they called me the next day and they said, look, we're not going to put you through to the next round, um, you know, we're sorry or, you know, we're not going to give you the job. And I said, oh, like I was so disappointed and I said, oh, why? And they said, we just didn't feel like you had enough energy. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, oh, well, here's why. I had the flu, but I just thought I'd push on. And I said, is there any way I could get another chance? And they said, oh, look, we don't normally do that, but I'll have a chat and I'll get back to you. And so they did yeah. end up giving me another chance. And I went back in, I ran another workshop and uh, and I, I didn't have the flu. And I thought, you know, it was quite high energy and it was a good workshop. And then they called me the next day and they said, sorry, we, we're not going to give you the job. And I said, oh, like, why was it the energy? And they said, no, no, you had lots of energy. And they said, look, a couple of people didn't find you very engaging. Right. And it's like, what do you do with that feedback? How do you become more engaging? Oh, and so I got off the phone and I bawled my eyes out. And I thought mm. after, you know, regrouping myself, I thought, I will just do it myself. I will start my own business. And that was 15 years ago. And yeah. that is what led to me starting Inventium. That's great. Such a good story. And so sometimes rejection is so kind of, it stings so badly. <laughs> yes. And, yes. and it, can, it can be such a motivator for the, the thing that's next. I mean, I think of two moments of rejection in my life. One, when I first applied to be a Rhodes Scholar, and they're like, this is, this, this is the process. You, you apply, everybody gets a first round interview, then we take it down to a short list. And I was like, okay, great. So I applied. I got a letter saying you didn't even make the, the interview round that everybody gets. Oh, <laughs> and I was no. like, oh, man, that is so oh. harsh. But it kind of spurred me two years later to come back and, and actually actually uh, won it the, the second time. And also with the, the book, um, the Coaching Habit book, it got turned down by a publisher. And I was so sure that they were going to say yes to it. And when they turned me down, I was like, oh, <laughs> and like, <laughs> just like you, this stings. And then I'm like, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. Oh, just go on and send a, sell a million copies. That's yeah, all. Well, exactly. <laughs> so now I'm, now I feel smug and morally, morally righteous as well. It's very gratifying. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, Michael, there was actually quite a smug ending to my story. Um, yeah. so the, the Sydney office, I was living in Sydney at the time in Australia and the, the job was in the Sydney office. And a year after I started in Bentium, the Sydney office closed because it wasn't profitable enough. 
Isn't that wonderful? I mean, not yeah, wonderful for all the lovely no. people that were there, but I just felt a little but bit. It feels like there's that. a sort of moral justice in the universe <laughs> there. Yes. What? Let me ask you this: what What motivates you, um, Amantha? I mean, you know, there's that that structure that I've heard, and it may be true. I'm not even sure if it is that some people are motivated by moving away from danger, and some people are motivated about moving towards reward. I'm wondering what what's your engine? For me, the thing that drives me and and I sort of I don't do as much work in the innovation space anymore. A lot of my right. work is focused on helping people use their time better and mm. work mm-hmm. in more sort of productive ways that are going to make them feel better about their work. So yeah. for me, the thing that drives me and makes me excited to like doing my podcast or do keynote speaking or, or write mm. uh, is, is giving people really practical ways that are based on science um, that mm. will help them do their best work but also feel really great at work right. Right. because that's what we found through our research at Inventium. Like when you give people the tools to work better um, and use the time that they have in, 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 in better ways, their job satisfaction goes up. They actually right. feel a whole lot better at the end of the day. So that's what motivates me. Yeah, I hear that. The, the feeling better thing is, is interesting because, you know, when you read a lot of kind of, let's call it productivity porn, here are eight hacks you can apply immediately to crush it at work. <laughs> it feels like it's more about the crushing of it and less about the this is a nourishing experience. How do you find the balance in the work or maybe just in your own life around how do I make progress on the stuff that I, that needs to be done, but how do I also make sure that I'm, I'm growing and looking after myself and and feeling better? Well, something that helps a lot is that Inventium runs a four day week. And so Mm. for people not familiar with that concept, the four day week doesn't mean just fitting your work into four really long days. It means that at Inventium, we pay people a full-time salary, so 100% pay for 80% time. So people work for normal length days, Monday mm. to Thursday, and we expect 100% output. So the output that they would give were they, um, you know, a full-time employee. So for me, I have Fridays off. Uh, doesn't mean that I don't work on Fridays ever. I will no. often do a bit of deep work in the morning, but not because I have to, because I want to. And um, I I feel like I was actually, um, I, I had this interview, um, it was the second time I'd interviewed her on how I work. Um, her name's Laura May Martin, and she's the executive productivity advisor at Google. And so one of the things that she does is she coaches the top executives at Google in how to be more productive. Mm. And one of the first questions she asks them, she was telling me in her coaching sessions, is she said, if you had an extra hour in your day, how would you use it? What would you be nice. doing? Um, and it might be something work-related. It might be something life-related. And I was thinking about that question. And I was actually, I'd, I'd just spent the um, last weekend away in the country with my partner and I was telling him about this and we were talking about what we do. And when he was asking me what would what would I do with that extra hour? I couldn't answer it because I feel like my <laughs> life is actually very 
um, oh, balanced in inverted great. commas. Like there's nothing right. else that I would try to put in because I'm really happy with how I'm using my time. Yeah. I might look at you and maybe some of the listeners are looking at you going, oh, curse her. How does she do that? What's the secret to her success? I'm, I'm wondering what you needed to say no to, not, not just the kind of practical, tactical stuff, but also maybe what did you know, need to say no to about some sense of self-identity? So you could say yes to fashioning this, this balanced and fulfilling life for yourself. Well, I think I'm, I think it comes down to being really clear on your values and Mm. thoughtful about your values, because I think most people has, my experience has been a lot of people are out of touch with what they actually value. And if, even if they are in touch with what they value, if you look at their calendar, their calendar does not align with their values. Right. And so for me, I, I constantly look at my, my calendar, my online calendar, GCAL, and I'm like, I'm looking at how I'm spending the week. And I'm like, does that align with what's important to me? So for example, my daughter is the number one thing that matters to me. And I'm divorced from her dad and I have her half the time. And so that time that I have her is very precious. Mm. And my diary reflects that. Um, you know, I do school pickups and drop-offs. Um, I could easily outsource that, but I choose not to. And so those days are a bit tighter when it comes to work. Um, health is very important to me. It's up there as a value next to being a mum. And so I allocate time in my diary to see a personal trainer three times a week and do a home workout, um, which is often done during the day. In fact, I just did my home workout before uh, logging on for this You're glowing. Interview. You're glowing I'm, with exercise glowing endorsement with right exercise. now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so I think it's an interesting exercise to go, firstly, what do you value? And then yeah. look at your calendar and go, how does that align? Like, am I allocating enough time to the things that are really important to me as opposed to just reacting what life and particularly work is throwing mm. at me? Well, let me, let me, I want to get to the, the two pages you're reading, but I know a lot of this is connected to your new book, TimeWise. And so I just want to poke on this a little bit, which is what I find is I'm, I'm not that good at not over cramming what's important to me. Because here's what's important to me. My wife, my health, writing a book, reading a book, managing a team, um, having new ideas, running a podcast. Um, eating <laughs> nutritionally and uh, enjoying my life, being in, being present in nature, enjoying the city, having dinner with friends. I've got so many things that are important to me that my calendar doesn't reflect all of that because it's my, my values are too crowded. Um, and so it, it turns my calendar into a bit of a papuri melange, um, <laughs> if that's even a thing. How, how do you get clear on your values, Amantha? What, do you have a process where you went, I'm actually figuring out what really is important to me? I've done several different things, but I think it's, hmm, I'm just trying to think what would be helpful because like I haven't come across the holy grail. Like right. of like, oh, I went through this process and it spat out oh. my top five <laughs> values and yeah. here I am, a fully evolved yeah. human being. That hasn't happened. <laughs> I do I do reflect on what are the things that really energize me mm. and bring me joy. 
Mm-hmm. And I reflect on what are the things that de-energize me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think about what's the sort of person that I want to be in this mm-hmm. world. And I think through asking myself those questions, I've become clear on my values. Yeah, that's helpful. And so tell me about the book you're going to read for us. Oh, I love this book. It's called <laughs> The Power of Moments by yeah. Ship and Dan Heath, who are brothers. Those two. Those two oh. are such good writers. I mean, there's not a single book that they've written that I haven't gone, damn it, I wish I'd written that book. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Like, just brilliant. So I'm just opening up to see when it was published. Um, you'd, you'd love it if I actually knew this prior to like the ten, interview. At least 10 years ago, I would have guessed. No, 2017. Oh, okay. How's so that? 20 so more five recent, yeah. years ago. All yeah. Right. yeah. So I, I read it in the year that it came out and yep. it has stuck with me. Um, it it has changed the way I think about um, being a mum. It has changed the way I think about um, I was about to say being a, a like a, a leader in my company. We yeah. run a holacracy, which means we don't have managers per se. No one reports into me, but I am uh, a leader as the founder of Inventium. Uh, so it definitely changed the way I think about that. Um, and it just, it, it changed the way I think um, a, a, about just living life in general. Um, and five years on, I, I would still think about this book frequently. How did it come into your life? I mean, is it just part of the flow of books that come through your through you because you're a podcaster and a reader and a host, or did it come through some other doorway? It came because I'm just a bit obsessed with the Heath brothers because <laughs> I think everything they write is gold. Um, right. And uh, yeah, and finally enough, I did actually get to interview Dan Heath on my podcast because in his most recent book, which was a couple of years ago called Upstream, he actually referenced my company Inventium and some stuff that we'd done and so we got connected through that which was like a, an absolutely thrilling moment in my life <laughs> I love that <laughs> there's a moment where Peter Block blurbed one of my books and I'm like I've just had my book blurbed by the person I admire most in this in this world in terms of thinking it was a professional highlight would be understating it yeah um, and how did you choose what two pages to read because that's always part oh. of the dilemma Oh my gosh, like I got the reminder a couple of days ago that I was doing this podcast and I'm like, oh damn, I need to <laughs> pick two pages in this like 300 page book. How on yeah. earth am I going to do that? And I remembered, like I remembered some of the stories from the book and, but then I'm like, mm, but that doesn't sum it up. And so I've actually, I I was like reading, rereading three parts of it and I, like I really, I often don't read the conclusion of books because I think mm. they're, um, that like there's nothing, there's no new information and it's generally just padding. Um, yeah. And I, I remember actually when I was writing the conclusion to TimeWise, my new book, I'm like, oh, God, these are so hard to write because they conclusions are. suck. But uh, <laughs> but the last two pages of this conclusion are beautiful and that's what I've chosen. Oh, wonderful. Um, well, let me introduce you, Dr. Amanda Imber, author of a new book, TimeWise, reading from The Power of Moments by the wonderful Heath Brothers. Amanda, over to you. Great. And so just to, to set up this extract, because it, it could have actually been three pages, uh, it's, a, it's a story about um, uh, Daniel Darcy's three-year-old daughter, Wendy, who in, uh, in June 2007 came down with a stomach ache and ended up having to go to hospital and it got quite serious.
One day in December, not long before Christmas, it began to snow outside. For a child from Vermont, it was cruel, having to watch the snow through the windows. Wendy loved to make snowmen, to go sleigh riding. She hadn't been outside for two months. Her lead nurse, Corrie Fogarty, and patient care associate Jessica Marsh hatched a plan. If Wendy couldn't play in the snow, they would bring the snow to her. But it was more complicated than that. Because of Wendy's heart condition, the staff was monitoring every milliliter of water that she consumed. So Jessica went and filled an emesis bucket with snow, weighed it, let it melt, and then poured it into a graduated cylinder. Now they knew how to translate the weight of snow into its volume of water. So they went and refilled the bucket with exactly the right amount of snow so that if Wendy ate it, as three-year-olds are prone to do, she'd be just fine. When they brought the bowl of snow into Wendy's room, she lit up. I've never seen such joy and pure innocence on a child's face, said Marsh. Can you imagine, said Darcy, a child who has only seen the inside of a hospital room for months, who only knew the sounds of machines and the buzzers, the television, the whoosh of the forced air, who only knew the sterility of the meal trays, the plastic-covered hospital bed, the stethoscope hanging over her head, getting a bowl of snow? It was bliss. It was joy. She thought it was the best thing in the world. It reminded her of home. Wendy's long nightmare eventually ended. She received a successful kidney transplant and since then has grown into a healthy young girl. She plays soccer, runs triathlons and won medals in the transplant Olympics. Mercifully, she has forgotten much of her health ordeal, but her mum hasn't. Darcy wrote in a blog years later about the bucket of snow. It is those moments of compassion and spontaneity that we are grateful for now, looking back. It's easy to forget the monotony of the endless days that stretched together during her recovery. But that one moment of brightness, that is one moment that we will never forget. And that's what a defining moment looks like. A burst of magic, thoughtful, playful, emotional, that was conjured into reality by two caregivers who thought a sick girl deserved an escape. And that's the charge for all of us to defy the forgettable flatness of everyday work and life by creating a few precious moments. What if every organization in the world offered new employees an unforgettable first day experience? What if every student had an academic experience as memorable as prom? What if every patient was asked, what matters to you? What if you called that old friend right now and finally made that road trip happen? What if we didn't just remember the defining moments of our lives, but made them? We can be the designers of moments that deliver elevation and insight and pride and connection. These extraordinary minutes and hours and days, they are what makes life meaningful and they are ours to create. That's uh, a great story and a great kind of encapsulation of what so much of this book is about. Um, Amanda, what particularly strikes a chord for you in this book, in this in these pages? I think like before reading the book, and I think before many people read the book, I imagine, you think of these memorable moments in your life as just happening serendipitously. Like right. Oh, I remember that. And, you know, how <laughs> fortuitous it was that that happened. Like we yeah. have no control about crafting those moments. But 
after reading the book, it like you, you become aware that it's like, no, like we have the power to craft and, and create those meaningful moments in not only our own lives, but importantly in those around us and the people that matter to us. Um, mm. And I just think that story about Wendy and the snow just encapsulates that so beautifully. Um, you know, it was such a small thing, but it was such a big thing. Amanda, what have you learned about how to give people permission or maybe how to get people to give themselves permission to create moments like this? And, and really it's asking a bigger question, which is like, how do you give people permission to, here's my reference back to Peter Block, the, the thinker I was mentioning before, and this is a quote from him, to give people responsibility for their own freedom so that there are active players in their life rather than passive players in their life. You know, in some ways that's a big part of what you write about in TimeWise and also the bigger picture of your work, which is to, to make a difference and to feel better about the work you do. You have to be an active player in that. How do you give people permission to be an active, an active person, an active player in their own life? Oh, that's an interesting question because I think what I try to do more is I, I try to be a role model and, mm. um, and I try to be really deliberate about creating those moments in right. my own life, like whether that be for my daughter or whether that be for uh, people in my team at Inventium yeah. um, or clients of ours, uh, you know, or, or my family. So I think, that is how I think about it. And, and that's where that yeah. book has had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 now I'm just like, I want to be nosy. I'm like, okay, so if <laughs> you've, 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 you've sat with this book for five years. Is there a magical moment that you've created, a, me a memorable moment that you're particularly proud of as, a, as an orchestrator of? Oh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, something I did do early on after reading the book, I think it was within the first year of reading the book, is I sat down with my daughter Frankie and this yeah. is during uh, the, the Christmas holidays in Australia, which is our big holidays. We get yeah. two, two months off school. So and good. Yeah, so good. Uh, and I said to Frankie, okay, let's make a list of all of the things that would just be super fun to do over the school holidays. And we made a list of about 20 different things and we put them uh, in, in like, um, like a, a little container. And I said, what we're going to do, Frankie, is every couple of days we're going to pick out something and we're going to do nice. that thing. And that was, that was a really cool exercise. Um, yeah. Something else that's uh, so funny, like, I think about what are the things that Frankie, my daughter, remembers. And, mm. like, you know, obviously, like, the last two years, we haven't really done much in the way of travel because of the pandemic. Yeah. And there was a, a period of time, like, Melbourne, where I live, had about, like, 260 days of lockdown. So I think yeah. that was the most in the world. So we spent a lot of time at home. But then there was there was a little break in the lockdowns. And I... Uh, and so what I did is I, I booked Frankie and I a night in a hotel in the city that was this glamping package mm. uh, where there was like a little tent, a little teepee 
set up in the hotel room and uh and and, and, like you know again it's a small thing but it was a big thing and there was all this build up to a night away in the city going glamping and um you know I think like we had dinner at the hotel and breakfast at the hotel uh but otherwise like we didn't do that much other than hang about in the hotel and we went for a little bit of a walk um you know outside down down the Yarra which was quite nice but Frankie talks about that night so much like for her (laughs) that was such a magical moment and it was just one night and like even a couple of weeks ago uh I well actually I booked us a couple of months ago but then I got COVID so we rebooked for a couple of weeks ago to spend again one night like these are short amounts of time in the scheme Mm. of life but just one night we stayed um at this place called Werribee Mansion in um sort of outer out of Melbourne and it's right near Werribee Open Range Zoo, which is, as it as the name suggests, an open range well, zoo. Well, animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of animals that, you know, uh, that you'd find in the jungle. Uh, and I'd booked us in to go giraffe feeding uh, as like a little extra thing. And yeah. we, we did that. And, um, again, it was like, it was 24 hours out of our lives, but I suspect that that will be a very memorable moment. Mm. Great. I've, I feel like for your next book, giraffe feeding needs to be a chapter heading because that <laughs> has to be a metaphor for something that becomes a, a teachable moment. Um, and then what's the connection between this commitment to creating magical moments that you talk about with Frankie and also from the, from the Heath Brothers book? and some of the key themes in your new book, Time Wise? Mm. I, uh, I, I open the book with, um, the, there's, there's a quote, uh, that, that, yeah, that I really loved, um, that, that goes something like, I will paraphrase it, um, because I'm just going to interrupt because we yeah. talked about this before I hit record. Yeah. Even though your book is imminent, even though other people in the world have copies, pre-publication p- copies of your book, you don't yet have a copy of your I book. Know. Otherwise, you'd be holding it up and showing us what it looks like. So exactly. I'm, I'm feeling outraged on your behalf. But sorry. I know. So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to remember what did I write? What was the quote? So the quote was yeah. something like, um, the, the bad news is time flies, but the good news is you're the pilot. Mm. And... For for me, like the the essence of the book is going, like so much of us spend our days just reacting to what other people throw at us, what they put in our diary, what like different directions that people want to pull us in, um, and that doesn't really lead to a fulfilling life where you feel like I've spent today wisely, today felt really good, or this week felt yeah. really good, like I've lived a week in line with my values, and so you know the book. Um, you know, despite the fact that I do like a bit of productivity porn, the book is not productivity porn. Yes, there are ways to be more efficient, but yeah. really what it comes down to is being more thoughtful with mm. how you do use the hours that, you know, that we've all been given. Yeah. What what surprised you in writing the book? I mean, I'm sure there's some bits you wrote where you're like, I, I know this and I've known it for a while and I'm recasting it in a way that's useful and, and shining new light on it. I'm wondering if you uncovered anything where you're like, huh, <laughs> this wasn't what I was expecting to be writing about. Well, the book was 
based on strategies that I'd heard from guests on my podcast, How I Work. Yes. And the premise of that show is I, I started doing that show in 2018 where I was thinking, you know, there, there are like all these successful people in the world and we've all got the same amount of hours in the day but they've achieved so much more than the rest of us mere mortals. And I thought there must be some secret, like something mm. they're doing to use their time more wisely than the rest of us. And so that was the hypothesis that I started out with. And yeah. what I found is that in every single interview that I've done for the show, there's at least one or two very practical strategies that I can take on board and using my own right. life. And so what I thought when writing the book is it's like, look, it's very time consuming to go back through the hundreds and hundreds of hours of podcasts to find these gems. So that wouldn't it be great to put it in a book to make it really simple for people to go, here's like, you know, nearly a hundred different strategies that are super practical, that are used by the world's most successful people. um, Like people like Adam Grant and Dan Pink and Amanda Palmer um, and people like that. And just sort of have them all at once. So look, in terms of um, some of the tips that have stuck with me, um, gosh, like so, like a lot of them are just very quirky things that I'm like, oh, I have yeah. to give that a try and that sounds very <laughs> useful. So for example, um, Marissa King is a professor at Yale and she researches social dynamics and social networks. And she, and, and like, like, most people, I hate networking. I hate being in a room <laughs> with strangers and having to make small talk. And I get very nervous um, about approaching people. And yeah. Marissa said, uh, what you want to do is you want to like, firstly, not walk into a vet and go, oh my God, it's an ocean of people because it's not, it's islands and it's little islands. Yeah. And then she said, what you want to do is remember that humans communicate in dyads. Like we're designed to communicate one-on-one in groups of two. So with that in mind, what you want to do is look for the odd numbered groups because someone will right. be on the outer. So now when I'm at an event, uh, which also is, is somewhat rare because I'm like quite introverted, I like my home, uh, yeah. And uh, but, but I'll look for like a group of three and I'll try right. to identify who's on the outer of this conversation and they'll probably be quite relieved if I go up to them and, you know, so they break off into a conversation with me. So that's something yes. that I, I thought. Can. Very useful. Um, you know, another tip that uh, well, before you give us another tip, yeah. can I build on build on this? Please because do. Have you heard of the bagel croissant approach to to networking? I have not. Sounds delicious. It does sound delicious, and basically anybody leading with a food metaphor, you've you've already won more than half the battle with me because <laughs> yes. I'm like, I don't sure what this is about, but I like it already. <laughs> yes. Um, it's it's a way of managing your group if you're in these big things so that it's more inviting and. Often a group of conversation will be a bagel, meaning it's a closed circle. And so if you're hovering on the outside, it's kind of hard to hard to find a way in. You have to shoulder past somebody. Whereas if you structure your group like a croissant, like a semicircle, there's actually a, a, a doorway for somebody like you to come up and go, right, here's how I can join this circle. So this is more if you're in the group already rather than looking for a conversation, which is like make sure, you're, make sure your group's a croissant, not a, a bagel. I love that. That's so good. Although I, and, do, and I when do doubt, love bagels. Eat a bagel or eat a croissant. <laughs> That's, that also works as well. But I, yeah. I interrupted you a second uh, insight from you. Oh, gosh. Um, look, I think this is a really useful one. I got this from Adam Grant, um, Wharton mm. Professor and host of the Work Life Podcast by Ted. And something he does twice a year is he does what he calls a life checkup. 
So, you know, he said to me, like, you know, most of us will go to the doctor, um, you know, once a year for a medical checkup. Um, but, um, you know, like life, like it's so important to actually think about what are you doing in your life? What are you doing in your career to actually stop and reflect? And he was prompted to do this because he'd have students that he'd taught, um, you know, in, in their MBA at Wharton and they'd go on to high powered jobs like on Wall Street and they'd call him a few years later and, and they would say that they're actually unhappy in their work, but, um, you know, kind of sunk costs, like they've put in all these years into their careers, they can't leave. And so the life checkup is something that he schedules every six months and he recommends this to his students as well to just reflect on how are you going? Are you enjoying what you're doing? Have you like hit a learning plateau? Do you need to introduce Mm -hmm. something new? Are you enjoying like the culture of the workplace that you're at? Like almost like um, I liken it to sort of setting a bit of a tripwire for yourself so you don't just keep going on default and yeah. um, and not reflecting and then ending up, you know, three, four years down the track and feeling like you can't change your mind or change course. Yeah. It's like occasionally taking a drone size view of who you are and what's going on for you. Cause you know, I'm, I'm not a gamer, but I'm, I'm now going to confuse a whole bunch of metaphors, but so often, <laughs> you know, you're running your life like a first person shooter, which is like, it's all from your perspective and you're not sure what's around the corner and, you're on alert. But if you kind of pull back and you're at that drone version, you're seeing the bigger picture. You see context, you see movement, you see, you know, where you are relative to your goal. You understand whether that goal is actually still your goal or whether, like so many goals, it kind of it morphs and emerges and changes. It's just a different perspective. Now, let me be nosy again. Do you actually do that? Or are you like, this is a good idea? And I think other people should do it. And I don't, and I never quite get around to it because I find with so many tips, I'm like, that's such a good tip. I'm not doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I do have that problem with a lot of tips that I receive, but I I definitely have done the life checkup. I don't think I've done it every six months on the dot. And I know that Adam diarizes it like, um, so yeah. that he doesn't miss it and like talking to you now, I'm like, mm, I should probably do that. Uh, <laughs> but no, I definitely yeah. have done it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's led to, you know, like, you know, making sometimes small, but sometimes significant changes to what, like what I want to be kind of, you know, shooting for or focusing on. You know, the launch of your book is, I hope a magical moment for you, a memorable moment, you know, something that is, memorable and meaningful and joyful and all of that what do you think will be different for you if anything once your book is in the world Hmm. that's an interesting question i think like but before we started recording i think we we were sort of talking about like what i was like looking forward to with the with the launch of the book and getting it out there and I feel like even though this is my third book, it's still like it's dawning on me that, oh, hang on, people are going to read this. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, okay. Um, <laughs> and so and with that in mind, I'm really looking forward to like hearing how people apply the strategies and the impact mm. that makes because I know for me with the podcast and given the book time-wise evolved from the How I Work podcast, uh, like one of the most rewarding things by far with the podcast is getting emails and and messages from people that listen to the show yeah. and say like it's it's transformed my work life and it's like oh like that 
that like, feels delightful. bloody amazing. Yeah. 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 A, a final question, Amantha. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this chat between you and me? Oh, you are such good questions. <laughs> uh, look, I hope that I hope that people, I mean, like we've been talking about moments and yeah. like I would love it if people listening to this episode just think about like who are the people that matter, that matter mm-hmm. most to them and think about how could they like in the next week or the next month actually curate a memorable moment for for someone that they love um, and something that will be remembered like years into the future and it doesn't have to be big and it doesn't have to take a lot of time or cost a lot of money. It can be actually very, very small. But I think that would be a really wonderful thing if, um, if people listening took the time to do that. So how do you make a moment? Look, I'm not an expert, but I've got some ideas around this. First of all, go full Priya Parker. Now, Priya Parker is the author of The Art of Gathering, and that book can be summed up really in a single sentence, which is be an active host. Don't leave it to chance, but shape the event that you're trying to create. Shape the experience. Second, disrupt the usual. Disrupt what's expected. So either do something new, or do something old in a new way. Rearranging the furniture, I found, both literally and metaphorically, is a really powerful thing to do. It always makes people hesitate and go, wait, (laughs) this wasn't what I was expecting. It's useful also to figure out what rules you can break, and then breaking them, of course, that also is a powerful strategy. And then finally, once you've gone full Priya Parker, host, and then decided to disrupt what's expected, commit. Don't just dip your toes in, plunge in, be all in, be in the moment. If you enjoyed the conversation with Amantha, I've got two other interviews I might suggest for you. Juliet Funt, her conversation was entitled The Powerful Pause. She's a really dynamic woman. I I love talking to Juliet and her book is also around how do you figure out time so that it can work best for you in a way that enlivens you rather than crushes you. And then Kim Scott, famous for uh, uh, Radical Candor. And we were talking about her new book, uh, which is also about how to work. Um, And that title, that interview is called When to Wave the Purple Flag. If you'd like more of Amantha, well, Amantha Imber is a pretty unusual name. So she has amantha.com. You can certainly check that out. And you'll find her new book out where you find books. So congratulations to her for that. You might want to even check out her podcast, How I Work. And I've actually been a guest on that. So if you'd like to see the tables being turned, you can listen to Amantha interviewing me um, on that wonderful podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating or reviewing the podcast. Thank you for passing interviews along. You know, I'm trying to be one of people's favorite podcasts. You know, it doesn't matter how many podcasts you've got listed on your podcast listening uh, platform. I reckon most of us listen to four or five or six regularly. I'd love to be one of those four, five, or six. If you think this podcast could be somebody else's four, five, or six favorite podcast, then please do let them know about it. Maybe send them an interview that you think would particularly strike a chord. Thanks for all your help. Thanks for all your support. You're awesome, and you're doing great.